Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of July 15th, 2019. On the show today, the new Takumi Tei restaurant opens in Epcot's Japan Pavilion, and it may be the second best restaurant in Walt Disney World. Also, I stay at Disney's new Grand Destino Tower and eat at the new Toledo Tapas Steak and Seafood and drink at the new Dahlia Lounge. Plus... We sent a Kylo Ren cupcake to a food testing lab to see how many calories are in one. My advice is to grab a snack, kids, before you listen to the show. And going along with the Grand Destino, Jim tells us the history and future of Disney's convention hotels. And speaking of Jim, let's bring in the man who says he wants his remains scattered around Walt Disney World and that he doesn't want to be cremated. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Wow. <laughs> no, right. Okay. I that one. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. It involves a food processor, and, and I don't think we need to get into specifics. I'm just I'm trying to persuade Alice to make continual treks on the, the Kilimanjaro Safari, and whenever they get to the lion section, just heave out a meatball. <laughs> Going to take a couple of weeks, but we'll get it done. All right. Shout out to my daughter, Hannah, who thought of that one. Okay. All right. Jim, let's do a shout out to, to new subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Amy H, EPH Eagle, and Allison B, and longtime subscribers, Blue Moon, Quantum 3. This, this sounds like a spy team, Jim. Uh, and Kyle B. Mm-hmm. Jim, you know the giant eye- eyeball you see floating in the preload scene in the Tower of Terror? Yes, it's got astigmatism, but but that's you know. <laughs> that's uh, that's Allison's eye, actually. True story. Very special modeling career she has there. Wow, I learned so much on this show. <laughs> so, all right, Jim, let's do the news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, last week we commented on how Disneyland attendance has been lower than expected after Star Wars Galaxy's Edge opened. And we said that part of this might be visitors putting off their annual trip to Disneyland until Rise of the Resistance opens. And I, Jim, I had this written this way, and it's changed since we started recording. Yeah. Uh, I had written mm-hmm. that rumor has it, as we record on this Thursday, that Disney will announce opening dates for Rise of the Resistance any day now, and that it might be in early December for Walt Disney World and 2020 for Disneyland. And then I said in parentheses, that's entirely rumors, so we could be completely wrong. But Jim, in the time that it took me to write that and to get you recording, apparently, lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Rise of the Resistance opens in world when? December 5th. December 5th. And then January 17th in Disneyland? Yeah. Wow. First of all, total coincidence that we picked those dates out of that. Had no inside information whatsoever. I will say, James, prior to this news, Mm -hmm. I coincidentally happened to make a VIP tour request Mm -hmm. for December 5th in Walt Disney World. Just saying. Go ahead. There we go. Got lucky. This is not going to help Anaheim situation. In fact, I don't know if you saw just in the past week that the, there is a hiring freeze going on in Anaheim right now. I, how, how did you? Ah, I was going to spring that on you. I didn't know you heard about it. So I heard I heard both hiring freeze and entertainment cutbacks. What did you hear? The numbers aren't there. People aren't coming out to the park. And what they decided to do to keep the annual pass holders away, coupled with the mantra of you know, it's going to be really busy and you're going to need to make a reservation. And Disney's trying to figure out how to turn that around. And certainly opening Rise of the Resistance on January 17th isn't going to help for the next six months. Is Disney saying that 
Rise isn't going to open for you know six months. Is it Disneyland basically telling people, look, if you want to see this, get off the couch and come now? Is that it? Because six months is kind of like that in-between time where it's like, we could put off our trip mm-hmm. until 2020 and do something with that week of vacation I had banked this year, mm-hmm. go somewhere else. And then because you know January starts a whole new vacation year for most people at their jobs. We could sort of do that, or we could do two trips. And Disney, I think, is bidding on the two trip. With Disneyland, that's the world's most famous regional theme park. And Disney yep. always tries to lure the locals to come out twice a year. And, you know, so that's why right. they have such an elaborate Halloween program. They have such an amazing holiday okay. program. That's a good point. Okay, so so now locals can say, look, I know I, um, uh, you know, I want to go for a Halloween, mm. but if... Rise of the Resistance is going to open in November, then I'm, I'll wait until November and go and see the Christmas stuff. But what this, basically what Disneyland is saying is nothing else is opening this year. So if you want to come, if there's any other reason for you to come, do it now. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. But, you know, at the same time, it's when you look at things like bringing back the Main Street Electrical Parade. Oh, geez. Or for that matter, you know, the, the thing that just got announced this past week, the, the character Cavalcade, where basically it's a flash mob of characters suddenly appearing on Main Street. I mean, there's a lot of stuff being thrown against the wall here just to see what sticks. And there is honestly no better time to visit Disneyland because nobody's there. If you are on the West Coast, get to this park come summer because come the fall, all of these annual pass holders who have been waiting to get in are going to hit like a tsunami, or at least Disney's hoping. They're also rushing to try to get so many of the items that have already gone out of stock at, at Black Spire Outpost back in. Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, I've heard a ton of merchandise there is uh, is flying off the shelves. It is. It is, and the stuff that's coming back in, into the fine theme park tradition is coming back with. Oh, did you, we say fourteen dollars? We meant sixteen dollars. Speaking of that, did you see that? Disneyland is. Have we talked about Disneyland selling the spare parts for the lightsabers now? I saw that. Did we talk about it? I don't think we did. I don't think we did. So when you when you go to build a lightsaber, you're handed a tray of parts. Mm-hmm. Basically, you're giving like like three or four options for the hilt, mm-hmm. three or four parts for uh, uh, top and bottom middle sections, three or four parts for sort of the clasps that go around it. And you, you pick one of each option, but the left are you know sort of left behind. Mm-hmm. And now I understand that you can buy those individual pieces for $20 a pop. And I have to think, Jim, this is one of those economic opportunities that Disney didn't plan on, but it was some enterprising cast member who said, what exactly is it that we're doing with with these unused parts in these trays? I mean, I know they're reassembling them for other people to pick out later, but like the cast member that had the idea that, you know, that we could sell these for $20 each needs to be promoted. (laughs) That's right up there. That's right up there with the sporks as far as I'm concerned in post-opening revenue generating ideas i agree i agree but there's always somebody who's looking for the okay so what is the the lightsaber equivalent of the fuzzy dice yeah you don't need this but you want it you want it yeah that's a fantastic idea mm-hmm. all right so that's good enough jim let's uh, let's take a brief detour and go over to uh universal orlando over in hagrid's coaster jim we mentioned last week that hagrid's coaster uh was still going through some operational issues despite being quote open mm-hmm. for a few weeks. It looks like those operational issues are not going to let up anytime soon because Universal has now printed a large all-weather sandwich board that says Hagrid's coaster isn't operating today. Not the sign, and you will pardon the joke, of a ride that is ready for reliable operation. Jim, what are you are you hearing about 
about Hagrid's coaster here. Seth Kaberski has been doing some amazing work keeping track of what's going on with that attraction. I, I think, I hope, you know, he gets home occasionally to see Genevieve and <laughs> change his shirt. But yeah, this is not how you want your summer to go. In fact, there's some nice balance here because, again, given what Disney's dealing with with Galaxy's Edge in Anaheim, it's only fair that Universal is having its issues with Hagrid. But man, yeah. the weird part of it is, if you remember the initial announcement, they were keeping the coaster closed in the morning to help with the maintenance issue and that sort of thing, and then throwing it open for noon or that sort of thing. But then they got bit by the classic Orlando summer. I mean, you know, the three o'clock rainstorm, the, the gully washer that shuts down everything. It's actually pouring here right now as we speak, Jim. There we go. So I have been discreetly reaching out to friends at Universal Creative trying to get a handle on what exactly is going on here because it's one thing to go from we need extra maintenance time in the morning to we're completely closed yeah but the weird thing of it is seth himself said that he's very diligent about once he's in the park he, he gets on this thing and rides and he was mentioning that the last time he wrote it it was the smoothest it's ever been so they're making maintenance and operational changes but what else is this about I get that you had a media event set up. You're flying people in. You're bringing in celebrities to open something. So you had to open then. But mm -hmm. what's going on now? I mean, there's the old adage that when people have a good time, they tell three friends. When people have a bad time, they tell seven friends. The word of mouth right now for what people who have ridden this thing say is, you know, honestly, one of the best coaches in the country right now. That's not going to matter much if all people can talk about is like, geez, I tried to get on this thing and they shut it down while I was in the queue or it didn't open at all that yeah. day. Every person that I've spoken to, when I asked them how it was, mm. they say one of two things. Mm. A, it was running yep. or B, it was great. Mm. Right. So it was, if it's running, it's fantastic. But the number of people who I've spoken to who have trekked it all the way out to Universal Orlando and found that the ride isn't operating is it, it's about 50 50 yeah. with the people who ever is great. But like everyone who I talked to says the first thing, first thing that they were happy about was the fact that it was simply running that day, mm -hmm. not that it was a good ride or anything like that. So uh, low bar to clear there. <laughs> okay. Well, no pressure, but you really want to have this up and running, you know, on a daily basis by December 5th. <laughs> okay. Hard, hard line in the sand right now. There we go. So. All right, Jim, speaking of uh, Star Wars, mm -hmm. Today's show is food-based, so a couple of weeks ago, we sent a Kylo Ren cupcake available at Disney's Hollywood Studios to a food testing lab mm -hmm. to see how many calories were in one of these things. So if you're not familiar with the cupcake, folks, it's a chocolate cupcake with peanut butter, whipped frosting, chocolate rocks, and a chocolate topper that looks like a mold of Kylo Ren's mask. It weighs in at almost nine ounces. So it's a big, it's a big cupcake. Yeah, if it was a steak, it'd be it's an ounce bigger than an eight ounce steak, right? Mm -hmm. So one of our writers, Christina, whose job is to taste test things like new cupcakes, uh, wondered how many calories she was eating per day. So we found a lab who could do the testing. And the way that they used to do this testing, Jim, was by burning the food, actually, and measuring how much the fire heated up a certain volume of water. So remember what a no, right? <laughs> this doesn't lead to a certain percentage of acreage in California going up, does it? I, it was, I think we said that, I think they were in Illinois, oh, Indiana. Oh, well, there so we go. It was, I, I, it was fine. I saw a giant column of smoke on the horizon. I was, I was just wondering. <laughs> it's either a new pope or LA's in flames. <laughs> there we go. So. 
Anyway, so remember what a calorie is, Jim. It's the amount of energy needed to heat one gram of water one degree Celsius. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't use that method much uh, these days. Something called the Atwater system. And the results can be plus or minus 20% from what I understand, but the idea is the same. Anyway, Jim, we sent this cupcake to the lab. Guess how many calories were in this Kylo Ren cupcake? Going to assume like 600 is a large number. <laughs> My sweet, sweet summer gym. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 1,075. Huh. Oh. Okay. So, <laughs> so Jim, yeah. uh, you know, cake isn't health food is, is actually not news. Mm -hmm. So let me put this into context. The typical cupcake you make at home is around 350 calories. Mm -hmm. The ones you buy at a local bakery, you know, or, you know, in the mall might be around 550. Okay. 1,075 calories, Jim, is about half the daily caloric intake for a woman in one cupcake. Oh, my God. So this is something a family of four should be sharing, right? You would want to split that cupcake. Oh, yes, yes. Wow. I was I was shocked, but uh, I was guessing before I went to the lab. I was guessing eight hundred. Mm -hmm. Wow, a little over a thousand calories. Well, obviously, given the technique that they use, they can't necessarily break down <laughs> what was the really calorie heavy element. I mean, the the it's the frosting. It's the yeah, frosting. it's the frosting. It's very very dense. Yeah, and I forget what the uh, what the fat percentage was on it, but it was. Uh, let me see if I I think I should have the label here. Hold on, say. Mm -hmm. All right, fat was about uh, twenty two percent mm -hmm. fat, and there was five percent protein in it. So you know, if you need to, <laughs> how did that get in there? <laughs> you know, exactly. I'm not not entirely sure. Yeah, okay. not entirely sure. Oh, wow, kind of amazing there. All so right. the, the the next next question we had obviously was what other thing do we send to the food lab to be incinerated? Mm -hmm to do the caloric content. I think the first, uh, everyone's first impulse is to say turkey leg. Mm -hmm. We'll see what happens there. The other ideas we've got though are, um, we'll do an entire day of the quick service meal plan oh. and see how many calories that is. Oh. I don't know. So if our, if our listeners have any ideas on what they want, uh, churros were also another big thing. Oh. But if our listeners uh, have any ideas on what they want to uh, want to see us test next, send it to us on uh, on Twitter, the Disney News Podcast. We'll, uh, we'll take a look. Just do you want to advise the scientists that are doing this, the churros, they want to be at least 10 feet away. <laughs> exactly. Somebody's losing well, an funny, eyebrow. The funny okay. thing is, so I, I, you know, I, I sort of cold emailed this lab. I'm like, hey, I've got this cupcake. I need it, you know, I need it mm -hmm. tested. And when I sent the uh, the cupcake in, the, the person who actually processed it had recently been to Walt Disney World and eaten that exact cupcake. Oh, okay. So we had this we had this great conversation about like, I want to know the results, but I don't want to know the results, right? <laughs> it, was, uh, it was kind of fantastic. I was very excited. On the other hand, I'm sure the other lab employees is like, why is Bob jogging around the parking lot? What is that? <laughs> he's, he's, he's crying. He's jogging. It was it was great. Anyway, okay. so, uh, it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun. All right, Jim, speaking of food, last Friday, the new uh, restaurant in Japan, Takumi Te opened and on sunday i went to eat there james it was fabulous really it was now this is a expansion of governor facility or this brand new it's in brand new facility so, so japan already has three restaurants right. like katsura grill which is up on the hill the quick service place teppan ito uh the hibachi place mm -hmm. and tokyo dining with uh, sushi and tempura those are on the second floor above the, uh, the department store mm -hmm. so kumite is actually uh it's different it's on the ground floor to the right of the Mitsukoshi entrance. It's different in a number of ways. One, it's on the first floor, but number two, it's much more high-end mm -hmm. dining than anything we've seen in theme parks, even more so than Tiffin's was and way more than Tiffin's is, mm -hmm. is now. It's a relatively small restaurant. I don't think it seats 100 people, tops. Mm -hmm. And it's separated into rooms based on elements. So there's a wood room, a stone room, 
There's a water room, which is the chef's table or I ate at and so on. Each room uh, features surfaces done in its namesake. So the wood room has wood. The stone room has stone or rock. The water room features a fountain and a very interesting table that looks like a, a stream with leaves in it. So it's it's very, very themed to the, the name of the room. So there's a couple of ways you can eat it to Kumite. One is traditional menu service. They've got sushi, they've got seafood, they've got Wagyu beef, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You can order that as you would a regular menu. But I think the more interesting thing, especially for a theme park restaurant, is that it has a kaiseki menu. Are you familiar with this? Why do I know that name? Kaiseki. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, traditional uh, multi-course themed dinner mm-hmm. in Japan that emphasizes freshness and seasonal ingredients. Got it. Okay. And it ends in a tea ceremony. There's the, the, the gentleman who did Everybody Loves Raymond has a wonderful show where he travels the world where you know he eats. And I, I believe they showed him doing this at, at a restaurant in Japan. And it was just kind of fascinating, the flavor yeah. combination. It takes many hours. It yeah. does, yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, so that's what I did on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I ate at the water room at the chef's table. In the interest of full disclosure, I was able to get a reservation even when the restaurant wasn't accepting reservations. And the way that I got the reservation uh, means there's a decent chance that the restaurant knew who I was Mm -hmm. and that I was there for review. I still paid full price for everything, but they probably knew what was going on. So take all of this with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. So the menu is super fancy. You start by uh, uh, getting a towel to clean your hands, but the uh, the menu comes out and it's specially made for you. It has your, your name on it. And it's a paper menu uh, describing what you're uh, you're about to eat. There's also a, a like like any sort of high end meal. There's a wine pairing that goes with it. It includes sake and wine. In that respect, it's a lot like uh, Victorian Alberts. Mm-hmm. The uh, the first course is called otoshi, and so this is the amuse bouche. This is the uh, sort of the thing that sort of uh, gets your palate started. This one was a salmon roll with crispy salmon skin. It was delicious. It was like two bites. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing about it was the delicate flavor of the salmon. It wasn't, it wasn't the, the, the kind of uh, roll that you dip in soy sauce or put wasabi on. This was just the salmon and the salmon skin. And the salmon skin was uh, arranged vertically like candy almost. Mm-hmm. A little bit of saltiness to it, but not a whole lot. Very subtle flavor. And this was, this was interesting to me. So we, we, um, it's my first time doing a kaiseki menu. Didn't know what to expect. My initial reaction after eating this was, it was kind of bland, and that was you'll see how this uh, how this entire menu goes, but uh, uh, it was less than spicy for a reason. The second course was a mozeku roll. It's a small sushi thing. This one uh, looked it was very intricate. So it was a square roll with a diamond shape in the middle of tuna and red rice around it, and then uh, there was I believe asparagus in the corners. So are you familiar with the? Uh, the artist uh, Mondrian, Piet Mondrian, yeah, with the, sort yeah, of a yeah. square mm-hmm. red and yellow. Yeah. That in sushi, Jim. Holy it was God. that in sushi. Yeah, very, very intricately mm-hmm. created roll. Two pieces of it with ginger on the side and with a lemongrass ponzu sauce. Super delicious. Very, very good. The, uh, the ponzu sauce was actually more of a foam mm-hmm. and it was very, very bright. So it worked really well with the sushi. You had almost had to have the two. I think it, this, it took the place of the of the soy in that. But again, super delicious. And in terms of flavor, it was one step up from the otoshi course that we had. So uh, very interesting. Hmm. Also, I put a bit of wasabi on this one, but it was very mild wasabi. Okay. The third course was hama no kani. This is called crabs on the beach. So it's crab claw poached in ponzu 
And this also comes with a, a piece of like a, a crab snack that you can buy next door. Mm. It's like basically a piece of candy. It had some lettuce on it. It had an heirloom tomato. It had some radish. Uh, and then there was some plum wine reduction on it. And taken together, you took a bite of everything together. It was all delicious. The candy was sort of like a trick on the side. Mm-hmm. You weren't supposed to eat it. But you had like the acidity of the tomato worked out really well. You had the crab was super sweet. The plum wine reduction was sort of, I wouldn't say savory, but it was it had, had depth to it. And then the uh, the frizzy, the, uh, the lettuce added a, like a sort of almost a peppery flavor to everything. It was a marvelous composition of flavors. Everything was slightly different. Everything was super fresh. And again, it was one step up in flavor from the previous meal. And sort of this third dish is where I, I sort of understood what was going on, that everything was progressing from simple flavors to more complex. So it only took like half a bottle of sake and three dishes to figure that out. <laughs> That's not bad. Okay. So there are nine courses. I will, I'll be brief on the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but one was, the next one was a seafood. It's a mitsoyaki ochazuke. It's a soup. So it's glazed sea, sea bass in a, a, on top of a sushi roll with pickled radish, nori, mushroom, with a green tea and fish stock broth. So they poured the broth as they served it, which made basically the rice disintegrate. So it became fish and rice soup. It was delicious. It was uh, my favorite thing uh, so far on this. The sea bass was perfectly done. It was like eating silk. Mm. It was fantastic. The next course after that was our first meat course. This is the Kamurosu. It was marinated duck. Mm. And it was fantastic. Seared with a uh, with a duck egg yolk and a grape reduction. It was served, uh, I think you've seen this in restaurants before. They bring it out and it's under a dome of glass mm. and the dome of glass is filled with smoke. There we Have go. you seen this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they, they did that. Uh, great presentation, super fantastic flavor on the duck, a great introduction to the meat. Uh, after that, we had a uh, palate cleanser, which was cucumber gel with pickled ginger sorbet. And then we got to the, sort of the uh, the main course, which was the Wagyu beef. Jim, you've, you're familiar with Wagyu beef, right? Uh, this is the stuff that's like yeah. super marbled from Japan. Mm-hmm. It's basically, it's, it's foie gras, mm-hmm. but that tastes like beef, right? That's my analogy on it. It was amazing. It came with... Uh, on a salt block with a, a set of vegetable accompaniments, uh, grilled onion, some morel mushrooms, curry potatoes, just fantastic sides. The beef was cooked perfectly, delicious flavor. Everyone who's had Wagyu, uh, Japanese Wagyu, knows what I'm talking about here. This did not disappoint. Um, they also served it with us, uh, another uh, steak, a, uh, a Florida uh, Wagyu beef, which is not as marbled, but still delicious. I mean, no one's going to throw that steak out. It was nice to see sort of the two different ways to do Wagyu. And then the Japanese version and the American version, it was uh, it was really amazing. And again, this was the, since it was the Wagyu, it was the most intense flavor of any course that we were served. So the, the menu did go exactly from simple and, and uh, mild flavors to complex and uh, more strong flavors. The chef did a, a fantastic job in, uh, in, in carving that out. The last dish was uh, water cake. Are you familiar with this? No. It, it looks like a bubble of water, actually. Mm-hmm. I don't even know it's in a water cake now that I say it. But it had uh, a brown sugar syrup on it, graham cracker-like crumbs, uh, and a few uh, edible uh, flowers on it. It was it was not at all sweet. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like traditionally, Americans have very sweet desserts. This one wasn't. It was just sweet enough. 
Yeah, and I, I liked it quite a bit. After that, we did the tea ceremony. There's apparently a way that you hold and drink the tea that we learned. I won't go into it here to save time, but uh, apparently a real tea ceremony uh, has a thousand steps in it. That's what we were told. Ooh. And I'm like, how long does it take to learn a thousand steps? You know, like, and the, and the look I got was like, dude, a long time, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but Jim, fantastic meal all around. Excellent service. I think it's the second best meal in Walt Disney World behind Victorian Alberts. And it's certainly less formal mm-hmm. than Viennese. There is a dress code. Men have to wear collared shirts, mm-hmm. no torn jeans, uh, that sort of thing. But overall, just a fantastic experience. Well, Can't wait to go back. Holy cow. Um, that sounds great. So the uh, the tasting menu mm-hmm. uh, for the chef's table is $180, $180 per person mm-hmm. with a wine and sake pairing available for an extra 100 So dinner for three with one wine pairing, some sake and some other drinks with tax ended up being around nine hundred and fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. It is to eat in a theme park. Mm-hmm. The thing and the thing that we noticed as we were waiting for our uh, waiting outside for our dining uh, companions to uh, to come up was that a number of people walked up to the restaurant, looked at the prices on the menu, and walked away. So here's my question to you: What's Disney trying to do with this? With this restaurant, is this a, a one-off experiment or is this a trend in the way that they're going? We will get to a little of this when we get to the Grand Destino, but the, there is the whole skybox attitude. We've seen it coming to to Walt Disney World. And the whole notion of at that price point, you're certainly not going to appeal to ninety percent of your guests. But there, yeah. if you you take the Venn diagram of foodies versus mm-hmm. those who are dining on their corporate account. I think Disney's hoping to make a run of this. Think about what you described with the various different rooms and that sort of thing. The the upfront costs of this were considerable. And if I were you, I'd circle back in in six months uh, to see what they're doing with the menu and how busy this place is. Because right now, of course, because it's just open, there were those who were sort of in land rush mode to get there to try the, the latest and greatest. Yeah. Our meal that the chef's table took about two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And I think they can get the pace down to about, you know, two, two fifteen. But it's not gonna be a uh, a forty five minute meal. There's just no way you no. can you can do that. So it's a relatively high price and a relatively long meal mm-hmm. in a theme park. And that's gonna be an interesting challenge for them. I think I think the people who are gonna go there, I think it's good enough that you should make a special trip. Okay. Number one. But you're not going to go there and then try and uh, you know see the American Adventure right before uh, getting in line for Illuminations or Candlelight Processional. Nope. This is one of those things where you're going there knowing that you're going to eat at this place for dinner, and that's going to be sort of the you're going to get out in time to see Illuminations, which we did. We walked out five minutes before Illuminations started, got to watch Illuminations. Good to see it again. So all in all, a fantastic night. Very cool. No, that sounds like a, a a pricey but fun addition to the park, and it'll just be interesting to see whether it succeeds going forward. The other thing I did, it was a busy week, Jim. Mm-hmm. Coronado Springs opened the Grand Destino Tower this past Tuesday, July 9th, and I was there to see it. So have you, you, you saw the news on this, right? Yes, yes. And I have to admit, I've been fascinated with this project since they announced it. So does it live up to the hype or? Well, we talked about it before, right? That it was, the problem with Coronado Springs as a convention hotel mm-hmm. is that as a moderate, you didn't really have anywhere to put your C-level executives, Mm -hmm. right? The CEO and so on that was befitting their their stature, Mm -hmm. right? As as captains of industry. Mm -hmm. So they would typically stay at the Animal Kingdom Lodge, which was a deluxe resort. So the Grand Destino Tower is supposed to address that. Um, So the rooms are definitely more upscale. Disney went went to 
uh, Spanish architecture, Spanish and Moorish architecture, I think, for the Grand Destino, which sort of ties in with the Southwest desert theme for the rest of Coronado Springs. It doesn't, it's not out of place. I will say this though, the, uh, the standard rooms in Grand Destino are a bit nicer than standard rooms in the rest of Coronado Springs. Mm. But the big thing is they've got a club level Kronos Lounge, which is, I think, every bit as good or better than almost every club level lounge in Walt Disney World. Right now, mm-hmm. I think it's the best value for a club level room in Walt Disney World. We talked to people who paid $300 a night mm-hmm. for club level access in Walt Disney World. So for comparison, the next cheapest one is the Wilderness Lodge at about $600 a night. And this is a way better lounge than the Wilderness Lodge lounge, let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. The other thing is the uh, Grand Destino has got a, a dedicated restaurant, the Toledo Tapas Steak and Seafood Place, and a uh, lounge next door called the Dahlia Lounge. Those are also better quality uh, than anything found at other Disney moderate resorts. So again, more upscale. I think this is going to fit the convention traffic pretty well. There are a couple of other things I really liked. One, th- when you're on the upper floors, they've got huge windows, and especially from the, uh, the restaurant, you've got panoramic views. Uh, all around Walt Disney World property. It's it's an even better viewing location than Top of the World or California Grill. Hmm. Fantastic views. I'm not saying you could jump and hit Galaxy's Edge, but you could be pretty close. Mm-hmm. Tons of desk space, very good lighting in the rooms. Bathrooms are huge. Lots of good lighting in there. Yeah, so overall, solid sort of setup in the, in the Grand Destino. I think in terms of weaknesses... The room decor is kind of generic. I think I told Laurel, if you take out a couple of accent tiles, some wallpaper, and a lamp, you could make this the yacht club, the beach club, the boardwalk inn, or the wilderness lodge with you know with a, a quick call to Wayfair.com. <laughs> okay, it's not particular. I mean, the public spaces are slightly more themed, and then the exterior architecture is more Las, Las Vegas light mm-hmm. than Spanish. Again, you, you could a, a different paint job and some uh, some exterior uh, artifacts. This could be uh, Italy. It could be, you know, it could be almost any, any country. Okay. That's fine. Mm-hmm. So they've got uh, a couple of different views. Standard view, which is queen beds or king beds. A water view, same thing, queen beds or king beds. Those start at 265 a night plus tax. If you want club level access, like I said, with a discount, with a summer discount, you can get them for around 300 bucks a night. I paid 400 because I was my own travel agent and I'm horrible at it. <laughs> they've also got deluxe suites. Uh, they've got a couple of one bedroom suites. And then uh, two presidential suites. Neither of them were actually finished wow. when the uh, when the building opened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, the uh, the Cronus Lounge is available from I think seven to ten every day, or seven to eleven. Substantial food available: breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Snacks the rest of the day. They'll give you alcohol at breakfast, lunch, and dinner too. And there's a refrigerator with cold water, soft drinks, and beer throughout the day as well. Services is very good. I liked it quite a bit. I thought it was a uh, uh, in terms of my moderate, I think it's clearly my new favorite moderate. Mm-hmm. So this is almost like a, a deluxe moderate at this point, right? Well, that was what they were shooting for. Oh, is it? I mean, well, a foot in both worlds because long-term plan here is thinking, you know, they want a lot of on-property convention business to shift to this facility. Because Lord knows that you have your options when it comes to Walt Disney World in the immediate environs. So, Jim, like the like Disney's got uh, four levels of value resorts, mm-hmm. with the uh, All Star Sports and Music being the lowest, then All Star Movies, then Pop, then then Art of Animation. Do you see the uh, the Disney trying to segment out the moderates the same way, so that you've got like sort of the low end moderates, uh, and then the middle end moderates, and then the high end moderates? This time next month, supposedly the Skyliner will be open. And running. And remember, there is a long-term plan of 
of at least extending you know the Skyliner as far as Disney Springs and then potentially all the way out to you know a station sitting between Kidani Village and the Animal Kingdom Lodge. Animal Kingdom Lodge yeah and the fact that Coronado Springs and the Grand Destino will be part of that mix it's going to be interesting to see what happens to the various price points at the hotels along the route of uh, if I uh, if I understand correctly uh, the 2020 prices for Pop Century and Art of Animation mm-hmm. have gone up a few tens of dollars yeah I think based on uh, the anticipation of the uh, the Skyliner mm-hmm. being a hit yeah it'll be interesting to watch what happens should the expansion go forward and depending on which hotels end up on the expanded line. All right, Jim, that's uh, probably enough of me talking for today's show. Uh, next show, we'll talk about the uh, the Three Bridges restaurant, the Toledo restaurant, the Dahlia Lounge, and the Barcelona Bar, which also I, uh, I visited. So let's take a break, Jim, and when we get back, we'll dive into how Disney is positioning their, uh, their convention hotels and also how they got started on all of this in the first place. How's that sound? Works for me. All right, folks, we'll be right back. All right, Jim. We were uh, we were just talking about uh, the new Grand Destino Tower mm-hmm. at Disney's Coronado Springs Convention Resort. Also, I was over at Yacht Club a couple days ago mm-hmm. and noticed the huge new convention space they've got there. Is Disney making a new push now for conventions? Is that the uh, is that the new thing? It's been interesting watching Disney sort of over time finesse its attitude toward conventions. I mean. When the resort opened in October of 71, if you wanted to do an on-site convention, you were limited to the contemporary. And at that point, they only had 30,000 square feet of of meeting space, and it was Mm. all broken up. Have you ever been up to the the second floor of the contemporary? You know, you sort of kind of, you know, you pass through that space, headed up to the concourse, and it's kind of a a no-man's land now? Yeah. It's a, it's a place to go and relax when you don't want to be on the, uh, for, on the first floor. Well, that's it exactly. But back in the day, this was where you went to have your convention. And in fact, this was, was known as the Level of the Americas. And they broke the space out into a number of different sized rooms. And they, they, of course, all had American sounding names like the Yellowstone Room, the Yosemite Room, the Redwoods Room. The La Brea Tar Pit Room. <laughs> sure. Yes. I, they missed that one, Len, but that, man, that, that would have been great. <laughs> I don't know why I'm not in marketing, Jim. There you go. It's the interesting thing for those of you who who enjoy American history, though. The biggest room could be created by combining the Atlantic Room and the Continental Room. You could get upwards of 1,400 folks into that space. And interesting thing, on November 17, 1973, it was in this exact room that then-President Richard Nixon stood on stage and gave his famous, I am not a crook speech. So, again, that... Bit of history happened on Disney World property. Wow. I don't know if it was the same day that John Lennon, you know, he was over at the Poly supposedly and signed the I am no longer a Beatle. But 30,000 square feet just wasn't a whole lot of space. So Disney looking forward is like, okay, well, we're going to start construction of the Asian Hotel in 19, <sighs> 1974. And the first floor, we're going to put it in all sorts of meeting space. In this 500-room hotel. Okay. What happens in October of 73, you know, started the Arab oil embargo. People stop driving, gas prices go up. Yeah, that's it exactly. So by March of 74, Disney is shutting down all sorts of plans. And the Asia thing is off the table. And a lot of the expansion that was intended to help Disney get 
more serious about conventions, it just fell off the table. And and there were a number of people who saw this as an opportunity. Uh, take, for example, the Tupperware folks. Tupperware, the uh, the plastic food container. Well, yeah, but they have their headquarters in Orlando. And are they really? Yes, they're in, you know, they're in, in fact, Orlando. You could go to the Tupperware Museum. Lynn. What? Seriously, 17192. You know, head on over and you can see the history of containers that burp. But anyway, <laughs> they built their own 80,000 square foot convention center right over there in 76. And Disney then, as they're gearing up for Epcot, realizes, man, we got to get back in this business. So August of 1980, they open the Walt Disney World Conference Center on, on the shores of Club Lake. Oh. This is, but this is a tiny facility. I mean, it's it's set up mostly for small and medium-sized business meetings. I mean, the largest meeting space in the entire convention center was only 6,500 square feet. Oh, geez. There are houses in uh, Golden Oak that are bigger than well, the gym. Well, that's what I mean. You know, meanwhile, February of 1983, phase one of what was then known as the Orange County Civic and Convention Center opens out on I Drive with 325,000 square feet of meeting uh. space. Jump ahead to September of, of 84, Michael Eisner named as the new chairman of CEO, and he's basically told, look, we need all sorts of new revenue streams and we need to get serious about the convention business because people are basically eating our lunch. I mean, take, for example, the Marriott Orlando World Center, which opened March, oh, March of 86. It's a small city. Well, that's what yeah. I mean. It, it's right at the edge, basically, of, of Hilltail Plaza, and it has uh, 105,000 square feet of meeting space. And it's right there. It is literally taking the food out of Mickey's mouth. So it's it's off of World Center Drive. That's it exactly. You know, <laughs> it's, so it, it's the other side of I four. All right, from uh, from Walt World. So March twenty seventh, nineteen eighty five. There's an agenda for what was known as the oh the Futures Conference. There we go. Yeah. Oh, we should do a we should do a show on this. Oh, absolutely. Because this is what led to the DVC. This is what led to a lot of stuff going forward for in Disney history. And well, we've hinted we've hinted to some of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe some point at this fall, let's do a whole show on this because there was so much okay. stuff. It was a two and three day long conference, and they really yep, did. Yep. I've seen the memos. Yeah, there's a there's a whole binder sitting in the uh, right. West Price Archives about it. Okay, yeah. let's definitely swing back on that. So January of 1988. They begin construction of the Dolphin and Swan, and this is the first deliberately designed to be an on-site convention hotel built on Disney property. So January 13th, 1990, Dolphin opens with 1,514 rooms. June of that year, the Swan opens with 756 rooms, but the big thing is the 331,000 square foot of meeting space shared by these two. Does it really have that much? Oh, God, yeah. So it had more... Meeting space than the Orlando Convention Center, Orange County Convention Center. Well, phase when it one. Remember, phase one, you know, right? That, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. They went on to, to, to at least three more phases. You know. Oh yeah. Now basically, it's International Drive. No, that's exactly. Okay. That's exactly okay. One of the other things that Eisner was day one, he was like, "We need to get more people into Epcot." So a that's one of the reasons why the Dolphin and Swan are built as close to Epcot as they are. That's why, literally, the day before the Dolphin opens on January 12, 1990, the International Gateway opens at Epcot. You have your back door straight into to Epcot. Oh, All of those yeah. conventioneers can go straight into World Showcase. And, uh, oddly yeah, and enough, 20 restaurants that they've got. Yeah, yeah you can, that's it exactly. Yeah. And if we jump ahead to the fall of this year, 
November of 1990, we have the Yacht Club open, and then two weeks later on November 19th, we have the Beach Club open. And when this thing first opened, it had 73,000 square feet of convention space. Yeah, that's not a lot, but they've they've grown since then. Well, think about it. If you combine it with the, the 331,000 that's across the way at the Swan, you've got f- over 400,000, you know, square feet of convention space. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was the thinking that you, you could spread out meetings between the two hotels. But the whole mindset during this period was we need to keep people on property. We need they we don't want them going out at night. To, you know, driving to downtown Orlando or going to Church Street Station. And we certainly don't want them just driving down four and going to Universal Studios Florida, which it had opened in June of that same year. So this is why January of 1992, Disney announced across Crescent Lake from Yacht and Beach and Dolphin and the Swan, they're going to build Disney's Boardwalk. And we're not talking about Boardwalk, the hotel, the, the one that opened July of 1996. Len, this is a 60-acre complex, a specialty retail entertainment complex that was supposed to recreate a classic 1930s boardwalk experience. Yep. We're talking about it it had its own amusement park. Uh, It was going to have a, uh, what is it, an antique roller uh, carousel, a lighted Ferris wheel, Arcade games, yep. uh, a couple of the pieces. Of- Paradise Pier, but, you know, in Orlando. Yeah, right. you know, in fact, it, it's interesting you say that because there's at least a couple of pieces of concept art for this that showed a classic wooden roller coaster, you know, sort of looming in the background. Now, mind you, on the second floor of this space, for example, above where the classic arcade games are going to be, Robert A.M. Stern, the gentleman who designed the Yacht and Beach Club, was going to build Disney's first all-suite hotel. That'd be good for convention traffic. Well, yeah. no, that's it exactly. And again, in fact, in, in, in the irony of what we were just talking about with the Grand Casino, about creating those spaces for your sea level folks, you know, it's like mm-hmm. you get to stay at the cool hotel right across the way there. And we've talked in the past about some of the, the stuff that was proposed here. The, the Walt's Attic restaurant, where you basically, it was like eating in the archives. Or for that matter, the 900-seat theater that was going to show the Little Mermaid dinner show. But I can't help but draw parallels between what Disney's dealing with now with Galaxy's mm-hmm. Edge in California with what happened with Pleasure Island when it first opened in May of 1989. When that first opened, there were three different levels of admission you could buy. A- yeah, it was, all, it was all very complicated. Oh, yeah. I mean, you could buy one, you know, one ticket to one club or a ticket that got you into three clubs or all of the clubs and... And then you factored in that if you went over there during the day, you could shop in the stores on Pleasure Island or eat in the restaurants if you could go in the club. And, and it just it, yeah. it confused folks. And so it, it just like Galaxy's at Anaheim right now, wasn't making its numbers. So come 1990, Disney basically relaunched it. In fact, they, they dragged those train cars over from the old Fult Wilderness steam train and created ticket booths where it's like, okay, one price gets you everything. And more to the point, hey, you want to stay here till almost midnight because every night is New Year's Eve and we have a street party and, and fireworks. And what Disney had envisioned was Pleasure Island will be for the normal guest, whereas Disney's boardwalk is really going to be, you know, how we're going to try to keep all our conventioneers in one place. And in fact, the cherry on the Sunday here was that Noah's Ark thing that Andrew Lloyd Webber was supposed to write that was going to be presented out on Crescent Lake every night. 
Right. But yeah, it just was one of these things where it's like, no, 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 no. We're having trouble operating one nighttime retail entertainment district. We don't need two. So this fell off the table and and then became the hotel, you know, the the boardwalk inn and the boardwalk villa that we know today. But from there, they pivot to the notion of let's try to create convention space wherever we can on property. So 92, we get a 40,000 foot uh, square foot convention center next to the the Grand Floridian. And likewise, when, when Boardwalk ends and the villas open up in July of 96, they get 20,000 square feet of meeting space. But in each case, they are learning what they genuinely need. And what they've gotten from feedback from these earlier convention is, frankly, there's a number of companies that would love to come to Walt Disney World, but, you know, they just don't want to put up, they don't want to pay Dolphin and Swan prices. They don't want to pay Boardwalk and and Yacht Club prices to keep their their folks right next to Convention Center. So this now is where we get the Coronado. So before we get to Coronado, Jim, real quick, I uh, I heard a story that while I was talking about the Coronado, mm-hmm. that the reason why Atlantic Dance Hall exists is because the Swan and the Dolphin and the uh, the Boardwalk when they were trying to figure out entertainment uh, options for their people, they thought uh, that. Atlantic Dance Hall and Jelly Rolls would be a, or basically were the, were the thing that they, with the Swan and Dolphin demanded from Disney mm-hmm. to build for the boardwalk to make up for the stuff that the boardwalk didn't get built. Well, no, that's it exactly. I mean, this was part of the, you're going to be built here, you're going to be right by Epcot, and now that you're going to have your dedicated entertainment complex. And, and, and the notion when that all fell off the table and just became a hotel, Tishman were the folks who paid to build dolphin and the swan and more to the point that one of the reasons they got the right to build there is they you know i think eisner was only on the job like three or four months when tishman got mad at disney and threatened to sue the company for i want to say 100 to 150 thousand or million dollars you know about you know you lied to us you know we helped you build epcot because you were going to help us you were going to give us you know choice to anywhere to build a hotel on property there were certain make goods that were made when Tishman got upset. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, okay, fine, sure, dueling pianos. So, you know, let's let's put that there. <laughs> sure, whatever you need. Whatever you need. Anyway, so so back to Coronado Springs. So a- again, you you've learned that okay, if we're going to be in the convention business, we need to have moderate rooms. You know, for for companies yeah. that aren't willing to pay monorail uh, hotel prices. So that's why that opens August of 1997. And it's basically, again, you, you, you know the layout of the place. It's it's built around this 220,000 square foot convention facilities with two giant ballrooms, an exhibit hall, 45 breakout rooms. But as we mentioned, it's all of those C-level folks who didn't necessarily want to stay there. And the very thing you were talking about, Len, where this hotel opens August of 1997. We get Animal Kingdom opens in April of the following year. Uh, Animal Kingdom Lodge, that's another three years after that, right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay, so at that point, you've got all of your executives, because they they want the high-end rooms, they're staying at the Flow. They're staying at Wilderness Lodge. And when it comes time for them to get over to the convention center, they have to deal with the traffic on World Drive. And mm. so you, you have folks showing up late. You have folks who miss meetings and that sort of thing because of transportation at Disney. So this is what Grand Destino was all about. You know, at least they're on property, you know, and getting them over yeah. to the convention center is literally 
hop in the elevator, get down to the lobby, walk over the facility, and you're there. Well, not only that, I mean, if you need if you need to get to the Epcot Resorts, mm-hmm. it's two stoplights away. If you need to go to the Magic Kingdom, mm-hmm. it's, there's an interchange right there. Well, yeah, it's very easy to get around. Now, speaking of which, you bring up the Magic Kingdom. We have now that giant convention uh, center that got built next to the Contemporary, opened back in November of 1991. It's got 90,000 square feet of meeting space. Given its location, it's tough to get to. Parking at the Contemporary has gone from tough to ridiculous with the opening of the Bay Lake Towers. It's one of these things where, especially with the money that's just been invested in the Grand Destino Tower, do we really, really want to continue to do conventions at the Contemporary? And in fact, right. and, you know, face it, you and I have talked on previous shows about the plan that's in place to add new DVC units at the Polynesian Village. In fact, for a time, there was yeah. the discussion of those relatively low-level towers. When we get on the far side of reflections, when that's finally open, because the demand is there, you know, people want to be able to buy DVCs, you know, that are, you know, attached to monorail hotel. You know, they want that proximity yep. to the kingdom. Yep. The Contemporary's Convention Center is going to need some updates. Yes. I've walked around it recently. Mm-hmm. It's of a time. It's a wonderful convention hotel from the ninth or convention facility from the 1990s, but this is 2019, soon to be 2020. Supposedly what they've done is they, they've programmed out how much money can we make off of a 90,000 square foot convention facility? How many, how many conventions are we getting typically per year? What are they willing to pay? And then the question is, okay, how much are we making off of the Bay Lake Tower? How much could we make off of a second Bay Lake Tower? Really? Because, yeah, remember when they when they only demolished, what, the North Garden Wing? Right. There was that South Garden Wing. Yeah. But at the same time, it's got to be a one-two punch line. One of the other issues that has to be resolved at the is parking, and especially going forward, especially with the DVC. So it's just the whole notion of if we build a second tower, we then have to build an accompanying parking garage. And where would that go? Oh yeah, they don't have enough for. Yeah, I guess they could build it right there. But you don't want to. You don't want to build a parking garage in the current parking lot because that would obscure the view, the theme park view mm-hmm. of some of those rooms. Well, that's that's what's yeah, kind of intriguing. Yeah, so, on the other side of reflections, and face it, we are what three years, four years, you know, away from from that actually coming online. A couple years and change. Yeah, sure, we'll see. It's going to be interesting to see where they pivot to because again. The demand is for DVC on the monorail hotels. And, you know, we've already got the villas at the flow. We've already got the one Bay Lake Tower. And yes, there are spots where this could be done at Polynesian Village, but it's problematic. Yeah, there's limited space right there. They're sort of constrained on both sides, one by the TTC and the other one by the Grand Floridian. So. So. And they can't go to the other side mm-hmm. because they've got a golf course and shades of green stuff there. But And at the same time, what they're hoping is that in the interim, so many people will go over to the Coronado Springs and try at the Grand Casino and go, oh my God, this is wonderful. Let's have our next convention here at yeah. the 220,000 square foot facility versus let's circle back to the Contemporary with its 90,000 square foot facility. No, it's a fantastic space over at, uh, I, I really like the Grand Destino. I think the rooms are, uh, rooms are solid, especially for the price. And like I said, for the, uh, for those of you who want to stay club level right now, it's the best bargain in, uh, in Walt Disney World club level rooms. So, uh, so definitely give it a chance. Okay. Definitely check it out if you get a chance. Mm-hmm. 
All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. For more of us, head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, rumored to be David Bowie's inspiration for Ziggy Stardust. Don't forget to go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.